0: Greetings, juniors. It's Mr. Shovlin with you for your audio recording of your reading of Absolute Relativism, the last part of Absolute Relativism we will be reading for class, from page 44 of your PDF, which begins with the title, the bolded phrase, Doesn't it smack of pride to claim to know the truth, to page 53-54. Please follow along with me, audioly, but also with your screen, to hear and see what is being read. Doesn't it smack of pride to claim to know the truth? Not as much as it smacks of pride to claim you can create your own truth, your own moral and spiritual universe. Not as much as it smacks of pride to assume that most of the human race throughout history has been wrong until a recent wave of open-mindedness. And not as much as it smacks of pride to reduce revelations from God or from nature to the level of your individual opinion. As if human thought is weighty. Those who believe in objective truth have the humility to seek the truth and to attempt to conform to it when they find it. It is hard to conceive of a prouder approach to philosophy and theology than relativism. Doesn't it seem to limit God in his vastness to try to box him in like one into one faith, excuse me, like Christians do? Holding that we can't know God clearly enough to distinguish between true and false opinions about him seems to go from vast to vague. Strangely, in our relativist culture, if a spiritual concept is vague and hard to grasp, we conclude that it must be because it is profound. Contrarily, if a spiritual concept is black and white and crystal and clear, we label it as overly simp- simplistic and narrow. Christians believe that God is love. His becoming man and dying for us makes sense only in the logic of love. Far from this being a limiting definition, there is no more vast and profound excuse me there's nothing more vast and profound than love we can argue that no other faith makes more a more sublime claim about who or what god is and if god is love then despite all his vastness wouldn't he reveal himself to us in ways that were clear and easy to grasp that's what jesus is god with a face and a name speaking in human words this self-revealing love of a transcendent god is far more profound and vast than the depiction of a vague amorphous impersonal divine mass that has never cared enough for the people he made to reveal himself clearly to them. But in the end, doesn't diversity strengthen us? And won't that be weakened if everyone thinks, as you do, about faith and morals? In some ways, the coexistence of many cultures is a great strength of the modern world. It has given birth to nations that thrive in countless ways because of their creativity and openness to ideas. It inspires intelligent dialogue, challenges us to charity and understanding, helps us to appreciate the common humanity that unites us all, but paradoxically, relativism destroys authentic diversity. A world where people openly and honestly disagree is diverse. A world that mandates unity through conformity to relativism and accuses people of bigotry for disagreeing with others is far from diverse. A relativist society sees all religious worldviews as equal and would suppress any person of faith who sees himself as more right than another. Such a society may have many churches, but in the end, each person is just a member of the church of relativism holding the same central dogma that there is nothing significant, nothing of a significant difference among faiths, and that God is something each person makes up for himself instead of someone each person discovers. There is nothing more monochromatic and boring than that. It's a cold December where both menorahs and Christmas trees are replaced by with vague banners saying hope and believe and never saying why to hope or what to believe. True diversity is when we can strongly disagree with respect and charity. My beloved brother-in-law is Jewish. I have no doubt that he thinks I'm wrong, dead wrong about Jesus. He isn't under the delusion that Jesus might be God for me, but someone entirely, excuse me, but someone entirely different for him. It's hard to be a relativist when it comes to a historical person. Jesus either is who he claimed to be or he's nuts. Of course, I'd claim he absolutely is God and that my brother-in-law is dead wrong. So we disagree about the person of Jesus. I'd assume that because of his affection for me, he'd be overjoyed if I came to share his Jewish faith. Likewise, I'd love if he became a Christian that doesn't mean we hate each other or have a fistfight every, at every family gathering. Not that every, excuse me, not that the issue even comes up. On, to the contrary, we respect, to, we respect one another on our journey to God and can even pray together. That's a true example of unity and diversity. We don't need to be united in relativism to be united in brotherhood. How can I know the truth about moral issues? When considering whether an action is right or wrong, we should follow the law, natural law and divine law. Divine law, recognized by people of faith, is what God has revealed directly about how we should act. Natural law refers to moral principles written in our very nature. How can we know natural law? A better question would be, how can we not? The Founding Fathers of the United States wrote that our basic human rights are self-evident. It doesn't take intensive formation to grasp that people have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Rather, it takes deformation not to see it. Thanks to natural law, most remote tribal cultures have figured out marriage and parental obligations and have frowned on behavior that undermines it. Familial obligations are written in the very nature of our procreating bodies. Natural law is why murder has been the most highly punishable crime in almost all cultures throughout history. It violates the life we can simply see in a person. We instinctively instinctively recoil at it. We don't have to think about it. Moral realism, a recognition that there are ethical principles that we all should live by wasn't concocted by religious leaders, it's in our DNA. Children have an innate sense that there is a right and a wrong, of fair and an unfair, etched into the foundation of the universe. After a child experiences the pain, play, excuse me, the pain of playground injustice, it doesn't take him long to articulate that it is bad or wrong when someone steals his ball or slaps him in the face. Relativism, a rejection of the notion that there are any shoulds or should nots, is an unnatural way of thinking. It has to be carefully taught to our children by the intellectual elite, or forced upon us by an oversized government that threatens citizens with penalties if they make an ethical claim, make an ethical claim, that that it has labeled as bigotry, because absolutism and natural law are such a part of the human experience. Relativism has dominated only a small portion of human history and it simply cannot dominate the world forever. If it succeeds at eventually tearing society apart, as it almost did in Mussolini's day, new realists will rise from the ashes. It seems that people like you are just trying to turn back the clock. Isn't relativism just about going us growing beyond antiquated moral views? Relativism doesn't represent a growth from antiquated views. It represents a total demolition of the human race's entire approach to ethics throughout history, replacing it with a flawed philosophy. The new golden rule that there are no rules. As far as moral views becoming antiquated, words like antiquated should be used for things like toasters. Words like right and wrong should be used for ideas. The if they're wrong, then they should be thrown out because they were always wrong. If they're right, then they should be even more trusted if they've stood the test of time. The passage of time doesn't make an ethical concept right, wrong, or obsolete. You don't use ethics to tell time. Using a clock to judge moral issues is just as foolish. Of course, in some areas, the latest discoveries have replaced old ideas. You wouldn't use a textbook from 1850 in your college biology class any more than you would go shopping for an antique microwave, but the truths identified in philosophy and theology are timeless. They can be polished, but they don't rust. How can I come to know the truth in matters of faith? There is more to faith than compiling enough logical or personal reasons to make a rational conclusion. Reason can help us Excuse me, reason can lead us to the threshold of faith. Reason can also help us understand the content of our faith after we've crossed that threshold, but reason can't cross the actual threshold for us. It takes more than being a theological genius to be a person of deep faith. That is because the object of faith is not a thing or a topic, but a person, God. Faith is not a science, but a relationship. This is why faith is brought about by an act of will, not only of the intellect. As an analogy, let's look at marriage. Rational thought can lead a man to rule out all other options and narrow his selection down to the one person he wants to marry. But in the end, the I do is an act of will, a decision to surrender to a person. You can't scientifically verify everything you know about that person, nor can all your knowledge explain away her mystery. Yet after you acquire enough evidence, her beauty and goodness leads you to make the decision to give her your life. In some sense, faith, like marriage, is a blind leap. But this is not because the faith is irrational, but rather supra-rational, that is to say, beyond the limits of our reason. There are parts of our universe that are beyond the limits of our sight. That doesn't mean they aren't there. As important as it is to use your reason, you cannot fully grasp the God you are embracing any more than you can fully grasp a marriage into which you are jumping. But once you have enough evidence, you jump anyway. Still, consider the fact that atheism requires a leap of faith as well. No atheist can scientifically verify that there is zero possibility that God exists, or if there is no God, there is anything in the universe as opposed to nothing. Yet after making a few discoveries, the atheist makes that leap of faith and decides that there is no God. Thus, both faith and a lack thereof involve an act of the will. What rational support is there for belief in God? We're diverting a bit from relativism, but we can do that for one or two questions. With all due respect to atheists, atheism is about as foolish as a flea refusing to believe in a dog. In the words of Edwin Conklin, biologist and associate of Albert Einstein at Princeton University, the probability of life originating from an accident is comparable to the probability of the unabridged dictionary resulting from an explosion in a print shop. A single strand of your DNA is more complex than a dictionary. There might have been a Big Bang followed by billions of years of evolution, but the notion that this could all happen without some intelligent oversight is as silly as seeing a book and assuming there is no author simply because you haven't seen him with your own eyes. It's as silly as assuming that conditions could have existed by chance for a book to evolve from nothing if given enough time. We can't claim to know why there is a God and a universe as opposed to nothing at all, but we can know if we see a book that there is an author. If we see a painting, there is a painter. If we see a string of things that began, there is an ultimate beginning. And if we see a universe, there is a creator. This is why all the philosophers of antiquity, some of the greatest minds ever to live, believe in God. Most relativists believe in God, and I would argue, many self-proclaimed atheists believe in God. They're just angry at him for one reason or another. What makes you so convinced about Christianity? If someone rises from the dead on his own power, I'll believe anything he says. The founder of Christianity rose from the dead. In the 19th century, the highly respected Harvard Law professor, Simon Greenleaf recognized that Christianity hinged on the belief that Jesus, in Jesus' resurrection. If Jesus Christ, in fact, rose from the dead, that substantiates everything he claimed. If he did not, he was either an opportunistic liar or a lunatic who thought he was God. Greenleaf sought to prove that the resurrection would nev- never stand in a court of law, but he ran into a problem with his theory. He knew that an eyewitness is a sure way to close a case— In the case of the resurrection, he found not only many eyewitnesses, but also that they were all willing to be put to death rather than retract their testimony. It's important to note that these eyewitnesses weren't just willing to die for a belief or a philosophy, but for testifying to a specific event that they had seen, the resurrection. Ten of the apostles suffered gruesome deaths, and one was exiled. In the end, Greenleaf became a Christian. What do you do when the faith you are so sure of is tested by adversity? How do you stay sure? Tragedy is an inevitable part of life. If you haven't experienced one yet, you eventually will, because pain is unavoidable and everyone dies. What's worse is that you will probably experience the death of loved ones before your own. Sorry for the downer. At a time like that, you might be tempted to cry out, My God, where are you? Check out Matthew 27, 46. The God of love has cried out the same prayer, so you wouldn't have to be alone. How can you keep faith at a time like that? You can continue to choose to believe. As said above, the object of faith is not a topic, but a person. And because that of that, faith is not just in your head, but it also involves an act of the will. Your brain is finite. It can only can recall only a limited scope of information at a time. In the midst of tragedy, you can't remember every reason you have for faith or everything that has reinforced that faith over the years in one instant. Just as a man faced with temptation can't recall in one instant all the wonderful things he's experienced in marriage. But like that faithful spouse, you can continue to choose faith in a loving author of life over hopelessness. Often in the light of faith, the chaos of tragedy starts to make sense some excuse me starts to make sense somehow or at least it becomes bearable and doesn't drain the meaning out of life in the words of saint augustine do not seek to understand so that you may believe but believe so that you may understand